welcome to the August 29 edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals cleared the way for some California health carriers to be sued for defrauding Medicare. Here's what happened in the published case of James M. Swobin versus United Healthcare Insurance Company. In 2009, James Swobin, a former data manager for California-based Scan Health Plan, filed a whistleblower complaint against his own employer and against United Health, Healthcare Partners, Aetna, WellPoint, and HealthNet. CMS pays Medicare Advantage insurance companies fixed monthly amounts for each enrollee. The payment for each enrollee is based on a risk adjustment data such as demographic demographic profile and the health status based upon medical diagnoses codes associated with each healthcare enrollee. Medicare Advantage organizations have a financial incentive to exaggerate an enrollee's health risks by reporting diagnosis codes that may not be supported by the enrollee's medical records. Therefore, regulations require them to certify that the risks adjustment data it submits are accurate, complete, and truthful to the best of their knowledge. But Mr. Swoban alleges in his lawsuit that United Healthcare, Aetna, WellPoint, and HealthNet, and healthcare partners performed biased retrospective medical record reviews. He claims that the retrospective reviews by these Medicare Advantage organizations should identify two types of errors in the risk adjustment data previously submitted. The erroneous diagnosis codes can be both underreporting errors, which is favorable to the Medicare Advantage organization since they were underpaid, and overreporting errors, which is an unfavorable report because the carrier ended up being overpaid. Mr. Swoban alleges in his lawsuit that the defendants conducted one-sided retrospective reviews designed to identify and report to CMS solely the first type of error. He alleges these reviews were designed to exaggerate the enrollee's health risks and to cause CMS to make inflated, capitated payments to them. Swobin alleges the defendant's periodic certifications are therefore false in violation of the Federal False Claims Act. But the district court dismissed the lawsuit without leave to amend, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed and reversed and reinstated the claim in the published case. Medicare Advantage organizations have an obligation to undertake due diligence to ensure the accuracy, completeness, and truthfulness of the risk adjustment data they submit to CMS. When carriers design retrospective reviews deliberately to avoid identifying erroneously submitted diagnoses codes that might otherwise have been identified with reasonable diligence, they can no longer certify the accuracy, completeness, and truthfulness of the data submitted to CMS. 
The California Court of Appeal ruled that an employer's indemnification clause obligates them to pay an injured employee's tort claims. Here's what happened in the published case of Aluma Systems Concrete Construction versus Nibby Brothers Incorporated. Aluma Systems entered into an agreement with Nibby Brothers to design and supply the materials for wall formwork and deck shoring at a Nibby construction project. The terms of the contract included an indemnification provision that required Nibby to defend, indemnify, and hold Aluma harmless against any and all claims for personal injuries arising from this contract. Later, two lawsuits were filed by Nibby employees against Aluma, alleging that the employees were injured after a shoring system designed by Aluma collapsed. The employee lawsuits alleged the collapse was due to Aluma's negligence and said nothing about Nibby's conduct. Aluma tendered the employee lawsuits to Nibby for defense and indemnification, but received no response. So they later sued Nibby for indemnification based on this indemnification clause in the party's contract. But the trial court sustained Nibby's demur without leave to amend, relying on the allegations in the underlying lawsuit that set forth claims only against Deluma and not against Nibby, the employer. The Court of Appeal reversed and remanded the case in the published decision. The parties dispute whether the indemnity provision, which applies to claims and damages in connection with the contract, except to the extent they are caused by the acts or omissions of Aluma, applies to the employee lawsuits. Nibby argues the employee lawsuits allege solely that Aluma's negligence and the indemnification provision therefore does not apply. But Aluma argues that the provision may apply because Aluma is jointly and severally liable for all economic damages in the employee lawsuits, including any attributable to the negligence of Nibby or others, as long as Aluma's negligence is partially responsible. Because the employees were working for the employer at the time of their injuries, they cannot sue Nibby for damages but must pursue benefits through the workers' comp system. However, this limitation on employers' liability does not extend to third parties, and the employees may sue a contractor for damages caused by its negligence. The Court of Appeal concluded that there is no basis to restrict the damages and losses so indemnified to the allegations of the employee lawsuits, rather than to the damages the contractor is ultimately found to be liable for. And now our crime report. The DWC reported that $600 million in liens against claims for workers' compensation benefits have been filed by convicted or criminally indicted parties between 2011 and 2015. The filing of a lien generates collateral litigation between the lien claimant and an insurer or employer over the validity of the claim and the necessity, extent, and value of any services provided. The parties may then settle on an amount due or adjudicate the dispute in a lien trial before the WCAB. 
and SB 863, which took effect in January 2013, included a number of provisions hoping to reduce costs by reducing the volume of lien claims and lien claim litigation in the workers' comp system. It reestablished lien filing fees to preclude frivolous lien filings and created an independent bill review system to remove most billing disputes from litigation and restricted third parties from collecting unassigned lien claims. Despite these efforts, the 68 businesses comprising the top 1% of lien filers filed more than 273,000 liens, totaling $2.5 billion in accounts receivable on adjudicated cases between 2013 and 2015. Two of the business owners are indicted and three others have pled guilty. Legislation is underway in Sacramento to stay liens of physicians or providers who are criminally charged with workers' compensation fraud, medical billing fraud, insurance fraud, and Medicare or Medi-Cal fraud. The DIR's review of filing dates indicates that lien claimants tend to wait until after the primary case is settled rather than seeking early resolution of medical necessity. Even if lien claimants, especially those who bundle and buy or sell accounts receivables, only make pennies on the dollar, returns can still be high. The DIR says it is attempting to identify and address strategies for improved anti-fraud efforts in the workers' compensation system. The DIR and the Department of Insurance convened working groups in June to gather stakeholder input and evidence of fraudulent activity in the system. The DIR will be preparing a report on further recommendations to the governor and the legislature by no later than the fall of 2016. 6. California Department of Insurance officers arrested 62-year-old Maria Elena Hernandez at her home, cuffed her, and drug her off to the Los Angeles County Jail. She protested that they had arrested the wrong person. However, it took two months before they confirmed their mistake. And when her 25-year-old son stepped toward the detectives to ask for official paperwork justifying the arrest, an officer pointed a gun at his head. A Department of Insurance spokeswoman said, Law enforcement officers are trained to have their weapons drawn until entry has been made and the residents or individuals have been secured. Her arrest warrant was issued after the California Department of Insurance confused her with another insurance fraud suspect who had used a false date of birth as well as a first and last name, but not middle name, that matched hers. But it is very difficult to understand how an observant team of peace officers could have made this mistake because they had in their possession a photograph of the real suspect and it did not match this Maria Hernandez, a common Hispanic name. The innocent Hernandez spent nearly two days in the county jail in Linwood before her family managed to bail her out. Her family now owes $2,000 to a bail bond company. And 
Hernandez faces another bill for a medical exam conducted at the direction of jail staff. The events that led to her arrest began in 2013 when a woman reported to Access General Insurance saying she'd been the driver of a car involved in an accident. She identified herself as Maria Mercedes Hernandez. An insurance investigator interviewed her at her South Park home and she verbally confirmed her name and date of birth, although she did not produce proof of her identification. After prodding from the investigator, the woman admitted that she had not actually been in an accident. She agreed to make the claim after meeting a man at a nightclub who promised to give her a cut of the insurance money. But importantly, before leaving the home, the insurance investigator took the woman's photograph. When the Department of Insurance detectives interviewed the wrong woman, or the correct woman, a year later, they said they recognized her from the photograph in the case file and said that she again identified herself as Maria Hernandez. But it ends up she had given a fake name and birth date. It was unclear if the woman had picked the name and date of birth at random or if she had deliberately used the arrested woman's identity. Exactly how insurance investigators mistook her for Maria Elena Hernandez, a person with a different middle name, is unclear, especially when the photograph did not match. The Department of Insurance spokeswoman and the district attorney's office declined to provide details on what led to the mix-up. A Pasadena doctor who falsely certified that at least 79 Medicare and Medi-Cal patients were qualified for hospice care because they were terminally ill has been sentenced to four years in federal prison. After a two-week jury trial last May, 43-year-old Boyao Hong was found guilty of four counts of healthcare fraud for participating in a scheme related to the Covina-based California Hospice Care. The company submitted about $8.8 million in fraudulent bills, which resulted in payments of nearly $7.4 million to the hospice company. A second doctor who was convicted at trial, 61-year-old Srai Wantgunarta, also known as Dr. J of Anaheim, was found guilty of seven counts of healthcare fraud, and he is scheduled to be sentenced in February 2017. In addition to the two doctors, eight other defendants were charged in the scheme and have pleaded guilty to fraud charges. Those other defendants include a 70-year-old placentia woman who purchased the hospice in 2007 and operated the facility after being charged and incarcerated in another health care fraud scheme. She pleaded guilty in December 2015 and was sentenced to eight years in prison. The hospice owners paid patient recruiters known as marketers or cappers to bring in Medicare and Medi-Cal beneficiaries. Nurses performed assessments to determine whether the beneficiaries were indeed terminally ill, and regardless of the outcome, the doctors certified that the beneficiaries were terminally ill even though the vast majority of them were not dying. The hospice altered medical records in response to Medicare audits to make the beneficiaries appear sicker. 
Gregory Chmielewski had what seemed like a brilliant idea. He wanted to create an alternative, low-cost version of workers' compensation insurance at a time when the price for traditional coverage was soaring. He was one of a handful of entrepreneurs who thought they could profit from the crisis by partnering with Indian tribes. He convinced the Fort Independence Community of Paiute Indians in Inyo County to bankroll a company that would offer discount coverage by using tribal laws to circumvent the state-run system. The company they created, Independent Staffing Solutions of Roseville, signed up dozens of clients, but fell apart after four years in business. Independent Staffing was unable to pay its bills despite hauling in $225 million in revenue from employers during its brief life. So what was it that went wrong? Well, Chmielewski admitted in his plea agreement that he siphoned $7.3 million from independent staffing in order to fund his personal real estate investments. And last week, he was sentenced to three years and five months in prison for misappropriation of funds. And in medical news... A new study published in the British Medical Journal offers additional evidence of a correlation between generous gratuitous payments by drug manufacturers to doctors and the increased prescriptions written for their drugs. The analysis offers a statistical demonstration of the phenomena supported by more than 20 years of suggestive data. And another recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association established a link between the free meals pharmaceutical companies offer and increased prescriptions. But this new study expands that study to include payments for a speaking and consultation fees, as well as indirect payments for education or for food and entertainment. And the authors also see a potential connection between payments made to physicians and substantial differences in regional prescribing. Yet according to the study, pharmaceutical companies continue to make payments to doctors, most of whom don't believe they can be influenced. But the preponderance of the evidence suggests that pharmaceutical companies have a profit motive behind their actions. More than 400 pharmaceutical and medical device makers have made payments to doctors after they were disciplined by state medical boards. The increasing costs of prescription drugs in the United States has become a source of concern for patients, prescribers, payers, and policymakers. In a new study, researchers reviewed peer-reviewed articles addressing the sources of drug prices in the United States and possible solutions. Their review was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association and concluded that per capita prescription drug spending in the United States exceeds that in all other countries. It is largely driven by brand-name drug prices that have been increasing in recent years at rates far beyond the consumer price index. Per capita spending on prescription drugs in 2013 was $858, compared with an average of only $400 for 19 other industrialized nations. In the United States, prescription medications now compromise uh, 
estimated 17% of overall personal health care services. The most important factor that allows manufacturers to set high drug prices is market exclusivity, protected by monopoly rights awarded upon Food and Drug Administration approval and by patents. The availability of generic drugs after this exclusivity period is the main reason of reducing prices in the United States. But access to generic drugs may be delayed by numerous business and legal strategies. The primary counterweight against excessive pricing during market exclusivity is the negotiating power of the payer. Although prices are often justified by the high cost of drug development, there is no evidence of an association between research and development and costs and prices. Instead, the study claims that prescription drugs are priced in the United States primarily on the basis of what the market will bear. Drug prices are higher in the United States than in the rest of the industrialized world, because the U.S. healthcare system allows manufacturers to set their own price for a given product. In contrast, in countries with national health insurance systems, a delegated body negotiates drug prices or rejects coverage of its products if the price demanded by the manufacturer is excessive in light of the benefit. Manufacturers may then decide to offer the drug at a lower price. In workers' compensation claims and in other systems, one factor that undermines competition among treatment alternatives is the separation of the roles of patients, prescribers, and payers. Physicians write prescriptions, pharmacists sell prescriptions, and patients or their insurers pay for them. This separation has traditionally insulated physicians from knowing about drug prices or considering those prices in their clinical decision-making, and can similarly remove many patients with good drug coverage from considering the price of the medications they purchase. And in regulatory news, the California Workers' Compensation Institute has created a new series of research publications. The California Workers' Compensation Regional Scorecards use subsets of data from CWCI's Industry Research Information System database to measure and analyze various aspects of claim experience within eight regions of the state. Scorecards for each region will profile claimant characteristics and highlight data compiled from claims filed by residents of the region. The first scorecard in the series released this week focuses on 2015 claims filed by residents of Los Angeles County, which account for about a quarter of the claims in the state and nearly a third of all paid losses. This scorecard finds a pattern of lower-than-average first-year payments on the Los Angeles claims, followed by higher losses as the claims age and a higher prevalence of cumulative trauma and nonspecific injury claims in Los Angeles County. The Institute plans to roll out more of the Injury Scorecard series over the next several months. And in other news, a feature article on the Risk and Insurance website reports that 
Sell Captives have become extremely popular self-insurance tools for companies of various sizes across all sectors. In its simplest form, a captive is a wholly owned subsidiary created to provide insurance to its non-insurance parent company. Captives are established to meet the risk management needs of the owners or members. They are essentially a form of self-insurance whereby the insurer is owned wholly by the insured. Once established, the captive operates like any commercial insurer. It issues policies, collects premiums, and pays claims. But it does not offer insurance to the public, and it is regulated as a captive rather than as a traditional insurer. The type of entity forming a captive varies from a major multinational corporation to a nonprofit organization. Captives are held by the vast majority of Fortune 500 companies as an alternative method of risk financing. For example, Gold Medal Insurance Company was established by General Mills as a captive, and Allstate was originally set up as a captive by Sears Roebuck and Company. The industries with the greatest number of captives are finance, real estate, construction, and manufacturing. Over the last several years, there has been particular growth in areas such as healthcare, property development, and securitization for life insurers. Because few companies are in the business of insurance themselves, most captive parents will hire an outside firm, often an insurance company or captive manager, to manage the captive for them. The captive concept took a while to catch on, but it gained momentum in the mid to late 80s during the hard commercial insurance market when liability coverage was either unavailable or unaffordable for many buyers. Over the past three decades, there's been a significant growth in the captive market. Today, there are more than 5,000 captives that do business around the world in a variety of industries. Almost 3,000 of the captives are domiciled in the Caribbean, 1,200 are domiciled in Europe and Asia, and more than 1,000 are domiciled in the United States. The majority of captives provide mainstream property casualty insurance coverage, such as general liability, product liability, and workers' compensation. Captives also provide specialized coverage for unusual or hard-to-insure risks, such as the terrorism risk. Oil companies have used captives to protect against environmental claims related to infrequent but potentially high-cost events. A major captive consulting firm saw nearly $100 million in new premiums last year for the 27 group captives that it advises. Recent interest in group captives has been driven by the improving economy, greater credit availability, and a hardening workers' compensation market. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.